what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld in our hands, handling concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, most of you all probably know John's writing. Um, it's a different gospel um, uh, in the way it's presented and how it's written. He's writing, he's writing to uh, Stoics, third period of the Stoics. Uh, that was a predominant uh, philosophy of the day along with uh, post-Gnostics and a splattering of Neoplatonism and all that. You know, th- those three and, and more uh, had in common this idea that it was inconceivable that God, higher power, whatever, could possibly be material, could possibly much less take on the frame of a man which is exactly what he did. He added humanity unto himself, and he's proclaiming this, or he added humanity unto himself for the purpose of redeeming his people. So now, hear about it. Hear about it with ears to hear and hearts to follow. Amen. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. And invite you as well to open the insert, the sermon notes insert, and use it to follow along and the like. So this morning we're going to look at Isaiah 9, and I've titled this The Story of Christmas from the perspective, obviously, of Isaiah 9. Um, and so um, let me invite you, if you would, as this is formal worship and in the context of the Bible, in the context of formal worship, um, when God's word was read in the synagogue, it was read, um, God's people stood. Um, so let me invite you to stand together with me as we read God's word. Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with uh, contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Let's follow the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, what a delight and privilege and joy it is for us, your people, to come here and worship you on this Lord's Day, this your holy Sabbath. We are so grateful for the call that you would give to sinful, weak individuals like us. And nevertheless, O Lord, in Jesus Christ, that call is effectual, such that we come not only knowing you, but also knowing that our worship is pleasing to you. So we come now this moment and pray, O God, feed us fellowship with us, condescend and enable us, O Lord, to um, commune and feast upon you, our Lord, both at this, at, at, with the preaching of your word and at this table, 
Lord, we pray you would nourish us. Holy Spirit, grant us unction that we might indeed um, not only hear your word, but allow that your word might feed us and transform us, convict us and encourage us and uh, um, uh, uh, drive us that we might seek to serve you, seek to know you, seek to love you more. We entrust this time, O Lord, to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So it was uh, December 1865. The Civil War has just ended. And a minister in the north by the name of Phillips Brooks was worn out. Physically, emotionally exhausted. So he, a single gentleman, 6'8", is his stature, a massive guy, um, ministering in a very large church at that time, was worn out. So he took um, a trip to the Promised Land in December um, with the hope for spiritual renewal and um, growth. And while he was there, it, it was Christmas time, and so Jerusalem was just packed back in 1865. And um, he, after time, got to the point where he just needed to be alone. And so he borrowed a horse and took a self-guided tour um, of Palestine on his own on Christmas Eve. And he went out and he looked and searched and, and discovered and found wonderful things that were biblically significant and relevant. And as the sun began to set, he, uh, set, he decided he'd make his way to Bethlehem and spend Christmas Eve there. And so he uh, began his journey there on, on, on horseback by nightfall. He was in the uh, fields where a tradition says the angels, the field is the uh, tradition. He was in the uh, traditional place where the angels met with the uh, shepherds. And at that place, um, um, Bethlehem was a small city back then. Today it's a large city, but back then it was a small city, probably the same size as it was in Christ's day. And he could look down. It was in this uh, valley type where he was. He was up on the hills. And he could look down and see this city, this small, insignificant city. And he, as he began meditating upon the fact that God Almighty deigned to inhabit a human, to become flesh, at that spot, it just took his breath away. It was a, a somber moment and a sober moment. He would never forget the rest of his life. He then went down into Bethlehem, attended a worship service, a Christmas Eve uh, service, and then he went home. And go going home, he told his family and friends that that moment, that evening, that time was so profound to him as he, as for whatever reason, God by grace gave him the faith to see and the eyes uh, to see the, the, uh, a little bit more of the weightiness of the incarnation in such an insignificant place as, Beth, as uh, Bethlehem. In fact, he told his friends that, that Bethlehem would sing in his soul as long as he lived. Three years later, he penned the words, O little town of Bethlehem, which you and I know full well. Dr. Brian Chapel, my uh, professor in seminary, wrote these words of this hymn. At the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem had become a town of little importance. Fallen from its renown as David's city, in fact, most people avoided it on their way to Jerusalem. Still, God's graceful design was to use the dingy town to bring his divine son into the world. On that day, Bethlehem shone so brightly that we would sing of her the hopes and fears of all the years are met in the uh, tonight. The king of glory came to a forgotten town in an oppressed land 
to be laid in a cattle trough by a disgraced mother of a transient family and to be announced to the world by lowly shepherds. Such is the humble and yet bleak context in which Jesus Christ came. And that context is parroted, is reflected in Isaiah chapter 9. And this beautiful passage that gives us another um, statement as to what the story of Christmas is all about. So we're going to look at this story from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. We're going to begin by looking at the broader context, the historical context of Isaiah uh, chapter 9. So let me um, begin there. Isaiah 9, verse 1, follow uh, with me. We'll look at the the bigger context. But But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Mark that word. In earlier times, he treated the the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with uh, contempt. Mark that word. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The historical context where um, Isaiah 9 is prophesying from, that context was one of anguish and one of contempt. Now, before we go on with that and expand that, you need uh, to realize that Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, is a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ. If you want, you can turn or just uh, listen to Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 12. We read these, these words. Speaking of Christ, Matthew wrote, Now, when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, He came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And so indeed, um, this passage is all about Christ. But to understand what this passage is saying about Christ, we have to understand a little bit about the context. So for that, let me have you in your minds, go back with me and look at the context of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah um, 7 through 9 is one section in Isaiah. So the entire history of um, Isaiah 9, the context, goes all the way back to Isaiah 7. And, and, And with that, therefore, let me have you go back in your minds to 1051 B.C. 1051 B.C. It was when God organized his people into a, th- into a theocratic nation. So at that point, Saul became the first king. After Saul was David. After David came Solomon. Solomon at the end was not the best king. Um, God's people were, were, were being abused by him. He died. His son Rehoboam becomes king. And Rehoboam foolishly in his youth um, effectively destroyed the uni- uh, uh, unity by saying, you thought it was bad under my, my dad? You haven't seen anything yet. So Jeroboam, the general of Solomon, one of uh, uh, Solomon's general, took, two, uh, took ten and a half tribes north, and they formed a brand new kingdom known as Israel. In the south, Rehoboam was Judah with two and a half uh, tribes. So, t- so ten and a half north, uh, two and a half south, though we now have two different um, uh, kingdoms, which once was one. Well, things went, went along well for the southern kingdom. Isaiah's written to Judah, the southern kingdom, so we'll talk about them. Things went pretty well for the southern uh, kingdom until 734 B.C. 
734 BC, Assyria was rising. The threat of Assyria was being felt in the land. you got a little map there. You can see where the Assyrians were. And the, and the, the kingdoms in Palestine knew that it was just a matter of time till they were threatened. So Aram, which is Syria, and Israel, who were basically buddies, the kings, Rezin and, and uh, Pekah, they decided the best way to handle Assyria was to get all of the kingdoms of Palestine to join uh, together, the, uh, uh, Judah, the Moabites, the um, uh, uh, Philistines, uh, name it, all of them to band uh, together to form a unified military front against Assyria. So at that point, they turned to their southern neighbor, the next largest kingdom, which is Judah, and said, hey, Ahaz, King Ahaz, join this coalition. But you may or may not remember, Ahaz had just gotten a bloody nose in battle from both of these kings. So he was smarting. He's not, not, he was not... Um, about to join this uh, coalition. So he said, no. So at that point, those two northern kingdoms said, then fine, we'll take our, our combined force and attack Judah, and we'll depose you, King Ahaz, and put a king on the throne who will join our coalition. And that's exactly the context of Isaiah chapter 7. If you would, gra- turn there with me, because that history is the history of chapter 9. So in Isaiah uh, chapter 7, it's at this point, God then called Isaiah to meet Ahaz. And this is what we, he, what we read, Isaiah 7, 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Sha'er Jashub. In the Hebrew, you would have heard, a remnant will return. Go meet Ahaz with a remnant will return. Incredible prophecy. Um, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. All right, Ah, um, Isaiah was called to go out and meet this king at the, as it says here, the conduit, the end of the conduit of 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 the upper pool. That's the water supply. So basically Ahaz here is getting ready for siege warfare. He knows it's a matter of time. The northern kings are going to attack. So he's ready for siege of warfare. Isaiah says, hey, trust God. Don't worry. These people, these are two kingdoms, the smoldering firebrands, which are basically the, what you have when a fire is going out, a campfire, right? Just the little smoldering logs. Don't worry. They're going to be gone. In fact, they will be, um, God's going to uh, remove them. Well, that sounded too good to be true to Ahaz. So in verse 14, which I want you to look at, God then told, um, through Isaiah, told Ahaz to, to um, seek a sign. This is uh, previous. He didn't do it, so God's going to give him that sign. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. Real quickly, a virgin. This word in the Hebrew re- refers to a young maiden. When we think of virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, we think of the virgin birth. Theologically, the virgin birth. And ultimately, it did mean that in in, in Matthew. But in this text, it's referring to a a woman who just got married, um, whom Ahaz and Isaiah knew. In fact, if you look at verse 15, it says he will eat curds and honey. That's the diet of a king. So most likely it's in Ahaz's household. One of his sons got married and his wife is now with child. And what God says, when that child's born, well, actually verse 16, for before that boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, which is typically two or three, the land whose two kings you dread will be gone, will be forsaken. So the prophecy was this, Ahaz trust God because those two kingdoms will be snuffed out. They're not going to hurt you. They will be destroyed. Trust 
God. And brothers and sisters, that you might see that indeed this was much more than just a prophecy at that time. If you would, listen to Matthew chapter 1, 22 through uh, 23. You can turn there as well. Because Matthew 1, 22 through 23 quotes Isaiah 7 as we read this. Announcements to uh, Mary. Um, after the announcement to Mary that she was with child by the Holy Spirit, Matthew records, Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. All right, so this is the picture. We are in Isaiah chapter 9, whose context is the exact same context as as chapter 7, which means God's people believe that they may not be there in, in two or three weeks. Which means God's people have been oppressed, attacked, and um, humbled so many times because of the northern kingdoms already. God's people are in fear. God's people are worrying. They don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know about their future because it looked really bleak. And yet you must see that Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, in our text, Isaiah 9, is but a prophecy of Jesus Christ, and that which raises this very important tool of the prophets, which I've explained to most of you before, and that is the uh, uh, prophetic tool of telescoping. So let me introduce you to that. Telescoping is when one prophetic utterance references two events. This is one a prophetic utterance, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7. Yet it references not only something in their day, but something that would happen later on. And what they call it telescoping because a telescope has what? Two lenses. And the way that it works is if you look through the first lens on the image on the second lens... So you've got to look through the present lens, through the present crisis, upon the, the, what God really wants you to, uh, to focus on. The second lens, you'll see things that you hadn't seen before. And that's what God's inviting his people to do. Look through this current struggle. Look through the difficulty in the life in which you currently live and behold the image of Jesus Christ because that ultimately is what this prophecy is for, what this prophecy is referencing. With that, I want you to look with me at Isaiah uh, verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 2, and we'll look now at the temporal context, or we could, or we could call that the spiritual context, better yet in your, in your outline. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The significant word there is darkness, or dark, hashak. That word you might think, would have reference to the context I just gave you. And it, it, it does, but it doesn't. That word darkness is used 20 times in the Bible, 19 in the Psalms, and 19 of those times it's used not of a literal darkness or a, a darkness of the threat of warfare, but an internal darkness, a spiritual blindness, guilt, a sense of guilt, a sense of worry, a sense of burden, a sense of grief. That's this word. He's not talking about people living threatened, or I'm sorry, unnecessarily threatened by the outside world. That may cause the internal darkness referenced in Isaiah 9 verse 2. But ultimately what's in mind here is the internal darkness that comes as the result of the world in which you live. Could be bad health, could be no money, could be a bad situation, a bad diagnosis. It could be a horrible context of warfare, of, of a, a disease. Name it. Whatever that is that presses in upon you and shakes your soul, 
that makes you someone who is now burdened and, and um, 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 heavy and darkened, where you can't see God. All you see is, is just what's before you. That's darkness. And, and the promise here is that God would send the light to your life, to these people living in this dark place, and shine upon them. Now, brothers and sisters, as we know this is a reference to Christ, I want you to see that what we've just saw in Isaiah 7 and 9, the context both physical and emotional and spiritual, that was exactly the context of God's people when Jesus Christ came. Would you notice with me, backside of your notes, that the messianic context was one of darkness. Would you notice first it was a felt darkness from God. Family of God, it had been 400 years since God's people had received revelation from God. 400 years since there was a prophet that walked the land. This is the time of Jesus Christ. So now I'm referencing the darkness in Christ's day. It had been 400 years since a prophet came. 400 years since a word from the Lord came. 400 years since they saw miracles. 400 years since God did these miraculous deliverances from, for his uh, people. All that's gone. Now, we live in the same world that they did too, meaning um, we don't have prophets. We don't have miracles. We don't have words uh, from the Lord. We've got God's finished word. But that finished word gives us commentary on how to interpret the world in which we live. These people had that commentary in the Old Testament, but not as clear And so for them, that silence on the part of God was deafening. Where was God? Where was he? They were hurting. They were burdened. They were heavy laden. And God was all but absent. Where was God? Secondly, the darkness was a dark time uh, politically. God's people from 586 B.C., the last 600 years at the time of Jesus Christ, have been living as a vassal people under one ruthless uh, regime uh, to the next. Babylon, then Persia, then the, the Greeks, and now Rome. And throughout all this time, God's people have been, have been pawns, uh, thrown around, cast around easily with, with, with indifference to them, their God, or their uh, religion. And we see that sort of not as the climax. Certainly there are other bad leaders. Antiochus Epiphanes was, was a horrible one from the Greeks. But at this time it was Herod the Great. Herod the Great became uh, king of the Jews in 34 BC through uh, assassination and murder. His chief uh, opponents, his chief uh, 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 competition were the Hasmoneans because they were the ruling class. They were the ones in charge prior to Herod. And so anytime he felt threatened, he felt his title, King of the Jews, which, by the way, Rome formally gave to Herod. He was known as the King of the, the Jews in Rome. Anytime he felt threatened by the Hasmoneans, he killed them. In fact, he even killed his wife, Miriamne, who was full Jewish. She was one of the Hasmoneans. He killed her because she, he felt threatened by her. Though he wasn't Jewish, he was Edomite. Nevertheless, he acted like he was this holy man because he's married to a Jewish a woman. He acted like he was Jewish, and so he swore off pigs, a pig, a, a ham or whatever. Pig, uh, he wouldn't eat, eat pig. Okay, yet this was all but one big ruse, this masked an underlying contempt for God's people. Yes, he rebuilt the Herodian temple, where we call it the Herodian. He rebuilt the temple. He made it glorious. But then he placed in charge of the temple high priests who were, who were um, bound by him and not God. They were corrupt. 
They were wicked. They were evil. Secondly, he, uh, um, because of all the work they did on the temple, he raised the temple tax. And so God's people now were paying a higher temple tax to pay for that uh, temple. And he used all that money to fund pagan religions. He's a very evil man. He was a very hostile man too, incredibly b- brutal. Before Herod snatched power, as I said, he killed Hasmoneans. And yet it didn't stop there. Whenever he felt threatened, someone died. He killed his mother-in-law and his wife's uncle. He drowned his brother-in-law and then he proceeded to, to uh, have a huge funeral where he acted like he was crying. He executed two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus in 7 BC. Five days before his death, he, he killed um, another son, Antipater. And when he neared his death, he had a hundred of the leading uh, um, men of Judaism in Jerusalem rounded up and put in prison so that when he died, they'd be executed and all of Israel would be in mourning. That's the kind of man that, that God's people were living under. This man, this man who at the announcement of Jesus' birth sought to kill Jesus Christ by killing all the two-year-old babies and younger. That's this guy. So you have this distance, this darkness, perceived darkness on the part of God because he's so quiet. You've got this political darkness raging around you where, man, oh man, this is a horrible place and time to live because of Herod. But then you've got Rome. Rome was as wretched as it was or um, vicious as it was broad. As a Jew in Rome, which typically they weren't uh, citizens, they could be um, imprisoned. They could have their money taken and they could be killed at the whim of a Roman soldier. It didn't matter. Just, whoop, done. You're not a citizen. You have no rights. But of all the darkness that God's people suffered at the time of Jesus Christ, prophesied by Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7, but Isaiah 9, the darkness in which God's people lived, it was a darkness, one of religious darkness. If you were to describe this time in redemptive history, you would probably go to Amos chapter 8, where we read these words. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. That was an apt description of Judaism at the time of Christ. God's word was gone. In its place was known as the oral a tradition, the Mishnah. God's people heard on a weekly basis when they heard sermons. It was not out of God's word, typically. It would, they would read God's word, but then they'd quote the rabbis from the Mishnah. And yet Judaism was corrupt from the top to the very bottom. Listen to Paul's rebuke of the Jewish leaders in Romans chapter 2. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit... Adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor um, um, idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you not dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed even among the Gentiles because of you. Brothers and sisters, that's light. Christ had much more to say about the Jewish leaders of, of his day and Judaism in the, at this time. He, I'll give you one, Matthew 23, 13 and 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering in uh, to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. 
Judaism, God's uh, worship was at a dark time. So they had a dark environment. They had no truth coming from God, from, from the worship of God at all, from the teachings of, of God. It was all darkness. In fact, we know it was so dark. And the reason why was because who was controlling Judaism at this time? Do you, do you know? John 8, 43 tells us, Christ said to the religious leaders, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Brothers and sisters, you know who was controlling Judaism at the time of Jesus Christ? Satan, the devil. So it was a dark, bleak, horrible time. Anguish, Isaiah 9. Contempt. It was a time where God's people, a true, genuine servant of God, would feel oppressed, heavy laden, burdened at the, at the, at the quietness of God. It's, how many years had they been praying? Generations. God, restore your name. And yet God remained silent. And Israel just, just, just went from good to bad to worse to awful. It's a dark time for God's people, a heavy time for God's people, a time of guilt, a time of wondering whether or not, indeed, God still cared. And yet, brothers and sisters, it was in this context that we read Isaiah chapter 9 in the prophecy that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, would come. Truly, at this time, God's people walked in darkness and lived in darkness. But as we saw, as we just saw in Esther, they weren't. God had not forgotten about them. God was their God. He was with them. Um, he, his being far off and removed, and he was not deaf to his people's prayer. He was not far off removed. He did not ignore their cries. In fact, what we saw from Esther was, was this. When God seems most absent, this is your fill in the blank, he is most present. That was the lesson from Esther, and that's the point of Isaiah 7 and 9. What would God send? What's the child's name? What's this light that would come to this world? Emmanuel, God with us. And it's that context where now we read Isaiah 9, 2b and 2d and, and, and sit back with, I hope, a sense of, of, of reverence and awe. Listen to verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The word for light here, or, is broad in the Bible, but because it's used in, as the opposite of the darkness of despair and, and gloom and a sense of doom from God, a sense of abandonment, a sense of spiritual oppression and depression, brothers and sisters, this light has a very definitive definition. Herbert Wolf wrote, in the famous priestly blessing of number six, the hephil stem of the verb is used in a similar context. Quote, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. This time-honored expression occurs five times in the, the Psalms, invoking God's saving and restoring presence on behalf of his servants. To see the light, I'm sorry, light uh, can also symbolize general life and prosperity. To see the light is to be born 
And the light of life is a poetic reference to being alive in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's to those people who are heavy laden, burdened by the external, which is now messing up their internal trust, hope, and joy in the Lord. Instead of living in the light of Christ to live in the darkness, God says he promises that Jesus Christ came to shine the light of his presence upon them. That is how God's word is, uh, that is how this word was used in reference uh, to Jesus Christ. Listen to Luke 1, 78. Zechariah's prophecy. Because of the tender mercy of our God, with, with, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah 9 is a prophecy of the meaning of Christmas. What is it? It's that Christ is the light of the world. Now, what does that mean? What what impact does that have? That light, when it shines into your soul as a believer, that light illumines your eyes to behold God has not forsaken you. God has not forgotten about you. Your sins are not so great that God has let you go. That light shines into your eyes so that you see, um, hopefully, truth and understand that God's saving grace, His sanctifying grace, His communing grace is so much greater than your sin, your disobedience, or the world in which we live. Listen to John chapter 8, verse 12, and how it uses the word light. Christ said again, He spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, in essence, he who walks in, li- in the light of me, he who walks knowing who I am or what I am, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Brothers and sisters, do you understand what Christmas is all about? It's about God coming to a sinful people and assuring them, one, if you've sinned such that you're separated fr- from God, all sin um, causes God's wrath upon us. If you are guilty of sin and therefore subject liable to God's wrath, God comes and says, Jesus Christ died in your place that you might live. Okay, that's the light of the world. He opens your eyes to the reality is you've got a savior. You don't need to stand before God on the basis of your conduct. You got a savior who died in your place. So now you stand before God on the basis of Christ. If that's true of you, Why are you so filled with gloom and doom? Well, because you still relate to God on the basis of your performance. And based on your uh, performance, you know you've fallen short of God. With the light of the world comes, John 8, and says, if if, if he's the light of the world, if you walk in light of him, in light of who he is, your your, your path will be light. Your path will be illumined. And you shall live and move as ones who are the object of God's pleasure of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, that's the light of the world. And so to see a great light, to have the light shine on oneself, speaks of the glorious transformation that occurs when gazing upon Christ, one goes from darkness to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life, from spiritual depression to spiritual joy. How does this happen? It occurs when the light of the world opens the eyes of the sinner such that they behold his forgiveness, their glorious standing before God, the love, grace, mercy that God has for them, and the victory that is theirs in Christ. Brothers and sisters, that 
When that happens, the light of Christ is shining in your soul. Do you know the forgiveness of sin this day? Do you know that it is well with your soul? Do you know that when God looks at you, he sees his beloved child, no condemnation? Do you know that when God gazes upon you, he sees a son or a daughter of his, fe- of his family, his a kingdom? Do you believe that? If you do not, because of what you've done, you are living without the light of the gospel in your lives. By grace, through faith alone in Christ alone, receive that glorious testimony of light. Receive it. Listen to what Christ says. John 1 In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend uh, comprehend it. Brothers and sisters, the life that you enjoy is the light of Christ. That's That's what Christmas is about. John 8, during his earthly ministry, we read of Christ. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness. I just said that. He'll live in the light. And lastly, Luke 2, Joseph and Mary bringing Christ to the temple to, be, to offer the sacrifice for the poor at the birth of their child. We read this from Luke. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. So even though he lived in a dark place, he still had hope in God. His hope was in God. His cons- he, was, he was devout looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And he came to this, in the Spirit into the, the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him custom of the law, then he took Christ into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou hast let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Brothers and sisters, it's not a vain hope to know that it is well with your soul this day because of Jesus Christ. But that comes by the Holy Spirit enlightening your eyes to let you see it is well with your soul no matter how bad it is. Phillips Brooks, as he stood over, as he sat on that horse gazing upon in the valley, Bethlehem wrote, uh, didn't write these words, later wrote them, but no doubt had this in mind when he was sitting there. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hope and fears of all the years are met in thee uh, tonight. Brothers and sisters, that is what Christmas is all about. I'm going to close with this statement. You've seen the bumper sticker. Jesus is the reason for the season. You've seen that? That's actually false. Okay? Now, I appreciate that that bumper sticker is saying it's not about Santa. It's not about gifts. It's not about, you know, thinking of the Peanuts, uh, Christmas, and Lucy, little girls with pretty dresses, right? It's not about that. What's Christmas about? Well, that bumper sticker says that Christmas is about Christ, and that's not right. Christmas is not just about Christ. It's about Christ redeeming his people, Christmas is not about Christ. It's about his people and their need for Christ. 
and our reliance upon Christ and our hunger and thirst for the light that Jesus Christ gives. Brothers and sisters, the celebration of Christmas is the celebration of our dependency upon Jesus Christ as the light of the world. So yes, he is the reason for the season, but, the, but, but get this, unless you and I are depending upon him, you can say as much as you want about Jesus Christ. You can say Jesus is the reason for the season, but it's not, because you're not depending. So this day, let me exhort you. Depend upon Christ. With the light given to you from this passage, depend upon Christ. One, his person, his character. Trust him for who he is. His protection, his provision, his salvation, and ultimately his plan for your life. Trust Christ to lead you to the place where you will not stumble. Brothers and sisters, that, Isaiah 9, is what Christmas is about. It's the light of the world dawning in our hearts this day. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word, this incredible prophecy, this incredible section in Isaiah 7 through 9 that is so rife with, with prophetic descriptions of what Jesus Christ is and and what he means to us. What you intend him to be and what you really are, Lord Jesus. We bow before you this day as a people living in a, a land similar to the time when Jesus Christ came, when you came. We've got the political darkness. We've got the, the wars and rumors of wars. We've got the famine, sickness, disease. Lord, we, we've got all of these things. And yet, Lord, we've got you. But sadly, so often the world in which we live presses so heavy upon us that we live in the flipses, the pressures of this life. And thus, Lord, we can be found with our focus and gaze not upon you, but upon all the burdens that weigh upon us this time of year. Like, just like Martha, burdened and bothered by so many things. God, I pray you'd give us the grace that in hearing this passage that we meditate upon it and consider all that you have given us in Jesus Christ, your person, who you are, Christ, your love, what you've done on our behalf at the cross, the reconciliation we have enjoyed through Jesus Christ, the justification, the therefore no condemnation, and the glorious prospect of glorification that awaits us all, that's a certainty in our lives because of Jesus Christ. God, give us the grace that as we gaze upon you, that, that light would grow us and mature us and um, strengthen us and motivate us and invigorate us to be a people who would worship you and exalt your name and sing praises to you, our God, though the Titanic upon which we stand is sinking. May you receive the praise and the glory because you are our light, the light of the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.